This is another of the occasional episodes of Behind the Book, conversations about the people, places, and ideas associated with Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, my new biography, which is available from your local bookstore and from the usual online vendors. If you're interested in getting a signed copy, go to the Historically Thinking website and click on the tab labeled Daniel Morgan to find three wonderful bookstores that would be happy to sell one to you. Today, I talk with Rod Andrew. He's a professor of history at Clemson University and, as you'll hear, a biographer of one of Morgan's most important allies in the American Revolution. My guest today for another episode of uh, Podcasting the Book is Rod Andrew. He is author of, among many other things, well, Where did I put my book? Oh, there it is. The Life and Times of General Andrew Pickens, Revolutionary War Hero, American Founder. So, Rod, you are a Marine, I believe, as we say. Right. right? So how long were you a Marine, and how did you get into this, uh, the academic, the academia thing? And which do you prefer? Don't tell me. Don't answer that. Uh, (laughs) Which is easier? Well, I I went in... uh, uh, I went into the Marine Corps. I went, into, I went to Marine Corps OCS uh, right after I graduated from college in 1987, uh-huh. and did about uh, three and a half years, depending on how you count it, of active duty, and then another 25 or so in the reserves, and uh, just retired out of the reserves uh, two years ago as a colonel. So I should, as colonel. As your, are you colonel professor now? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so what was your MOS when you were artillery? Uh, you were artillery. artillery. Mm-hmm. Okay, the king. That's right, the king of battle. That's right. <laughs> so I guess it's not surprising then that your first book was about military academies. I mean, that was sort of a natural kind of thing. You, you've, you focused on military history. I was interested in this idea of a military tradition, the idea that the, supposedly the South had, has a unique or different military tradition. Does it? Um, and uh, that's... That was one of the conclusions of, of that first book. That it yes. was? That it does? Yeah, right. And there's been, I mean, I know of an unpublished dissertation on the militarization of New England schools mm-hmm. in the 1840s and 50s. There seems to be, I think most higher education became more militarized because of the, well, I mean, at UVA they murdered a professor. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I like to show visitors on the lawn right where he dropped. Right. Um, it, things were getting out of control by the 1840s in most schools throughout the United States. Uh, so there seems to have been a militaristic... The lack of discipline was a real problem in antebellum colleges, and Southerners felt like it was worse for their sons, that yes. they were even worse. Um, and there are some sociological and, reasons for that. And, and uh, yeah, yeah. They didn't and, want to be curbed. They didn't want to be disciplined. That, right. was, for, that was for slave people. That's right. That's um, right. That, so that any attempt to put this certainly at UVA, any attempt to put discipline on them was seen as an affront to their They were raising young men to be, to be autonomous yeah. and, and, and to slave, not submit and, to and authority. And now, but now they needed to yeah, submit to exactly. authority. But, yeah. but also, um, antebellum colleges had a lot of uh, class bias where <laughs> poorer students were literally with black blacken the boots yeah. or, or perform menial chores for, for wealthier students. And you could tell by the way they dressed who was rich and who was poor. So it's very English. But in a military academy, everybody wore the same thing. And yeah. that was that was deliberate. Uh, there was a reason for that. So and it's a democratizing. It was, it, was, it, was, it was egalitarian. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of Jackson, feature of Jacksonian democracy right. as well. Right. So how many military schools were there compared to? There were a lot. Uh, but they've diminished greatly since that. Um, 1915 is when you conclude your book. Um, there's a, I, I use the figures of another historian named Bruce Alardis, 
um, said that uh, there were over probably about 112 uh, state-supported colleges and military academies in the slave states wow. before 1860, uh, maybe about a dozen in the free states. Wow. Um, so it was a prominent feature of Southern higher education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I've, I know a guy who's headmaster of a school in Connecticut called the Gunnery, mm-hmm. founded by a transcendentalist, Frederick Gunn, into nature study. Mm-hmm. And yet he's, Gunn is considered the founder of American recreational camping because he would take his students 60 miles to Long Island Sound and back as a sort of rite of passage. And you think, well, he did that for right of this, for nature and for getting to know things. And so, you uh, after the military academy book, you went on. You've written about Wade Hampton, the fourth, not the real one. I think the of third. The, the third. Yeah. I always think of the real Wade. Well, it's the <laughs> second one at, at, the, at Utah Springs and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wanted to talk to you about Andrew Pickens. This is your third book. Right. Um, so, how did you get from? Wade Hampton and I mean your other book is sort of set around the Civil War as well the military academies uh, how'd you get to Andy Pickens although I, well, I feel so bad calling him Andy I mean he would certainly <laughs> I would never do that to his face right right <laughs> um, well you know you could say it was a kind of a foolish career move to kind of change your, you know your your time period yeah. uh, mid-career and, and when I've been doing 19th and early 20th century but um Frankly, Hampton, the Hampton book had come out, and I was casting around for my next book project. And a man named Joel Collins, who is actually a Pickens descendant, uh, an attorney in Columbia, um, contacted our department chair at the time hmm. and said, do you have any grad students who are interested in doing a thesis on my ancestor, Andrew Pickens? It's been a long time since anything's been written on him. And I was the graduate coordinator at the time, uh-huh. and I knew that we didn't have any graduate students working in the Revolutionary Era at all. Mm-hmm. And so I just started, you know, I picked, you know, got the um, Alice Noble Waring's book on Andrew Pickens and started reading it, and I started reading some of the stories about Pickens, and it was one story in particular. I remember that when I read it, I was hooked, and I decided well, I enjoyed I enjoyed doing biography, and this would be another guy who'd be a... So what was the story that you read that hooked you? It, it was when um, he renounced his parole. Oh, the uh, The latter half of 1780. He so had, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that, because that's something I want to talk about. It's a great... It's yeah. a great... I can see why. I mean, it's, it's right. very Hollywood. I mean, it's... It, it really is. It's made it's, for it's Hollywood got, movie. It's, it's got great box office value. <laughs> Except for that, we have to say that the cover of your book, I've heard you say this before, has got... The most lively and vivacious portrait of oh, yeah, Andrew Pickens ever painted, which shows him basically as a angry owl. I mean, he, he is a very he has a very stern uh, demeanor. Yes, he does. Uh, um, and someone said of him, "What was it that he would take words out of his mouth and examine them in his fingers before speaking?" Right. Right. Um, a man given to slow and deliberate speech. Right. Uh, he was a Presbyterian elder and looked like it. You right. know, um, that's what people always say, and they're not wrong. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yet I, I realized, uh, just looking at your book again, um, he was only 43 when the revolution ended. We always think of them as being, right. you know, 60 or 70 or something like right. that. He's right. 43. Right. And he was already a combat veteran by the time he was 22 in the French and Indian War. He had mm-hmm. fought against the Cherokee mm-hmm. a lot. Right. 
Right. So here he is. He's been fighting in South Carolina as a Whig, as a rebel, Mm -hmm. for five years. Then the British take Charlestown in May 1780. Right. Well, then what happens? Well, Pickens, just like uh, almost every other Whig officer in the state, laid down his arms and accepted parole. Um, and people don't realize that South Carolina was conquered. It was, con- and, it was, and, and so was Georgia. They, they, the British really managed to pull defeat out of the jaws of victory. They, they, they certainly did. And one thing they did is they changed the terms of the parole. Stupidest thing ever done by a, you know, it's just, right. And so, what was the first parole? Refresh my memory. Was that was just if you didn't? I think if you just didn't fight. Right, you and, were free. and it was changed so that you actually, uh, if called upon, you actually had to take up arms for the king. Right, yeah. Um, so they changed the terms of the parole, and then as they advanced um, into the uh, the back country of the state and advanced up con- in the up country of Georgia, um, they were just overly harsh and unnecessarily harsh, and it was an opportunity for for Tories who had been mistreated by their Whig neighbors to get their revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Whigs, as I recall, since first battle of the South is what if ninety six, right? In what in the winter of seventy five, right? Uh, Sometime uh, snow campaign, autumn, yeah. And then there's a snow campaign, and then the uh, yeah, and then they suppress basically the rebels suppress loyalists in the backcountry, right? But um, and who knows how many loyalists? That's impossible to say. It changes, right. Right. but certainly the rebels suppress anybody who are, is willing to lead a loyalist. Let's get. Uh, a loyalist uprising against the rebel government. <laughs> it gets kind of, but that, so they're suppressed. The British show up, and then the loyalists rise. The tables are turned. Tables are turned. And um, as the, the revolution kind of springs back to life because of the mistreatment of many of, of many Whigs. Yeah. Um, Pickens um, maintains the terms of his parole. Um, it's really, it, it's, really amazing. Yeah, it's for several months. Uh, Whig leaders are hoping Pickens is going to come back around, and meanwhile, the British are recruiting him and trying to, you know, get him into their camp, give him a, a, a king's commission. Um, and uh, it's kind of, it's he to me, it's kind of, it's hard to tell what he's doing. He's he's on the fence. He seems to be really interested in um, just stability in his home neighborhood. Yeah, we should talk about that. You make a, oh, there's a great, let me read you to yourself. I love doing that to people because they're always so, they're always <laughs> so startled by it. Um, this is after, uh, this is when the moment when Pickens wept, uh, somewhat after his little brother, John, is killed. Um, a statement by his neighbor says that he wept like a child. Uh, John was Pickens' last surviving brother the baby of the family whose future had been entrusted to him in his father's will. Pickens' grief is also a reminder that his desire to, re- to restore moral and social order in the backcountry was not an abstract goal. It was intertwined with the need to come to grips with personal loss. Um, you could have called this book Andrew Pickens' Liberty and Order because mm-hmm. order is such a part of his life. From right. He moves to Long Canes, what, he's 22, 21, he moves there because of a massacre of the Calhoun family. He marries a survivor of that. Survivor of the massacre, right. Yeah. Um, and from that moment, he's trying to establish order in a very lawless place. Right. And then the revolution comes and it gets even more lawless. Right, right. 
Um, so I think it's just that's just a powerful theme in his life right. that you bring out. Right. And so he thinks that that I, I think he thinks that with under British rule, there's a chance that that order. Uh, and some semblance of liberty can be preserved. Um, and he's a Presbyterian, takes oaths he takes and covenants. Oaths, he takes them seriously. A co- which is an oath is a, a covenant. covenant. It's a covenant, that's right. And, and he takes that, that's witnessed by God, right. and that is, a, it's, that's very right. serious. Right. And so when a loyalist band comes to his we, plantation, we don't, you know, this is not Terra. Not, no, not it's not, t- it's a it log. Comes log to his estate, yeah. It's a log cabin, several log cabins. Right, uh, yeah and destroys a great deal of his property and taunts and perhaps roughs up his wife and children. Burns all his outbuildings. Burns all his outbuildings. Let's burn his house. Uh, This is not the Patriot, but they burn all the outbuildings. Right. Um, And and then the switch is flipped. I mean, um, he is no longer held held to a covenant that the other side has... Since King's Mountain has occurred in what October, early October, so he's obviously been and he's obviously been delaying and being coy with the British who Mm -hmm. want him to lead the militia. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, the Patriots can't get the whole Long Canes district, which is large, Mm -hmm. to rise up. Right? Mm -hmm. They only recruit one of them. Was it uh, Elijah Clark? Only recruits about fifty or eighty people Mm -hmm. in Long Canes, Um, and. so he really, his neutrality, mm-hmm. it shows how stupid Henry Clinton was to tr- switch the parole. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had kept Pickens neutral, right, you would have kept Long Canes neutral. Right, right. And, and they knew that. And they knew and, that. And the Whigs knew, too, that both sides knew that the, the Long Canes were probably going to go whichever direction Pickens went. And, um, Which is an amazing statement for what apparently is, by all external appearances, is a very uncharismatic man. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but it's, right. this, they're right. not doing it because he's a movie star. That's right. They're doing it because he is somehow their, I don't know, conscience, right. moral rectitude, who knows what. But he's something like, he, he has got a different kind of charisma. Yeah. Yeah. But at that point, he could have just slipped off into the hinterland and joined the you know, the parties of Whig, yeah. Whig partisans. And, and, and instead, he marches right into he ri- the tent. He rides into camp. He rides into the, the nearest British garrison. A little outpost. Right. As you say, he's not stupid enough or foolish enough. <laughs> he doesn't ride into Fort 96. Right. But he does go to the nearest outpost. Right, right. And it says um, to, to the senior officer present, I, I am hereby released from the terms of my parole. Who's a Tory officer. Right. He's, is he a South Carolinian or I think a Jerseyman? New Jersey. Yeah, away, yeah, like most of them were. Right. There, yeah. Right. And this man knew Pickens and he liked him and begged him to reconsider. He said, you know, you'll be fighting with a, a halter around your neck. And um, he said, nevertheless, due to the violence suffered by my property and my family, I, I'm really. And he, he turned around, walked out, got on his horse and rode away. So. So the way he went about it just just made me think. Okay, this is this an, is an interesting character. I, interesting I need man. to try to get to know this guy. We, we often exaggerate about. I think people exaggerate uh, what the the danger that founder that the people in the uh, rebels in the revolution mm-hmm. were in. Uh, after all, Henry Lawrence actually went to the Tower of London, but they didn't execute him, even though he was president of the Rebel mm-hmm. Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Pickens is one of those exceptions. Um, Cornwallis's orders are very explicit. Mm-hmm. If Pickens left any Negroes, cattle, or pro- other property, they must be seized and used for the supply of the king's troops. Further, I desire that his house may be burnt 
and his plantations totally destroyed and himself it captured instantly hanged full stop right. so he was one of those who was fought the rest of the war with a with a with a noose around his neck right absolutely um so, so what does he do next? This is important to my story, is where he shows up. Well, um, yeah, it, immediately small bands, companies start gathering around Pickens, and he, he immediately makes contact with Green, mm-hmm. Nathaniel Green, and uh, is told to coordinate with Daniel Morgan. And so he meets uh, Morgan on the Saluda, I think is where, or the Pacolet, Pacolet the, the, little, believe, the, yeah. little, the Grindle Shoals on the yeah. Pacolet. Yeah. And Pickens rides into camp. He's got how many men does he have? Has he collected five hundred or four hundred or something like that? Um, it's so hard to tell. I think exactly. the numbers changing they, daily. They change it's, all the time. It's changing daily. It's increasing daily. Yeah, right. Um, let's, let's just say a few hundred. A few hundred. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You point out that and this is this is like right out of the page of modern counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. How Kruger, the very competent. New Yorker loyalist who commands at 96, I mean, mm-hmm. very competent soldier, mm-hmm. says we're going to need 500 more men because Pickens has gone over at 96 to police the area. Right. You know, it's, a, it's a statement of what happens when you lose the loyalty of one local prominent dignitary. Right. You know. Right. Um, so he's gone over. He's he's joins up with uh, Morgan and. You know, okay, Morgan did become a Presbyterian the last four years of his life, <laughs> uh, but it's hard to think of a more different sort of yeah. uh, character yeah. than the rum-drinking, uh, three women on his store account, uh, one of whom he married, you know, uh-huh. Daniel Morgan and Andrew Pickens. Uh, but they like each other. Um, they trust each other, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you think is, what does Pickens contribute to, to Morgan? What does he bring to Morgan? What what he brings to the table is um, well, well. First of all, he brings what the, the what the best that the militia can contribute, which is intelligence about the enemy, um, gathering supplies. Mm-hmm. Which you know, people don't think about logistics and intelligence; they think about what happens on the actual day of the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, by gathering supplies, he's denying supplies to to Tarleton. Yes. Um, and um, then, of course, some extra firepower on the day of the actual battle. And also, I, we can even add security. Security. Uh, yes. uh, since we know that Morgan left, some of Pickens' men were left to secure the area, mm-hmm. to guard against any loyalists. Uh, they're doing counterintelligence work in some right. ways. They're keeping any loyalists from taking news to Cornwallis and Morgan's. You yeah. know, they're, they're engaged in the full panoply mm-hmm. of sort of field intelligence work. We all, we, people don't think about that. Right. Militia are always acting as security forces. They're right. acting as, okay, secret police is a little bit much, but right. they, are act, they feel that they are an internal police force right. against the loyalist. Right, they're uh, a, a dangerous in the loyal countryside, person. and yeah. this is just so important in an insurgency. It, it's so. funny when you look at primary documents. I, I haven't seen the ones for South Carolina, but when you're reading up on loyalist activity in, say, New Jersey, mm-hmm. even South Jersey, it's amazing the number of people that are out at night. Right. You know, David Fisher talks about this in Washington's Crossing. It's always, or at Paul Revere's ride, the number of people are out. And it's amazing the counts of loyalist uh, militia patrols always moving around at night up and down the roads, you know. That's how you keep a population subdued. Well, if you, if you think of the British effort uh, in the Re- American Revolution, particularly in the South, as a counterinsurgency right. operation, um, and, and what we know 
what we understand better, I think, now is that in counterinsurgency, you have to, the population has to, has to gamble that your side can protect them. Yes. That, that uh, uh, and, and once they start to make that calculation, recruits and supplies and intelligence start to come your way. Green has a letter from 78, 79. Basically, it's a very long memo to Washington, which is just, like a lot of stuff, is brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. it just comes out of his head. Right. No one taught him this. But he says, um, he says, he, basically, he's saying, I can't understand why the British Army doesn't act as I think they should. <laughs> um, but he lays out what he thinks the British should do, and it's kind of what he, it's what he ends up doing in the South. He mm-hmm. says, they're like a ship moving through the ocean. Mm-hmm. They pass, and then the waves crash in upon themselves, and then they're gone. Right. They never basically stay in one place and show that we can't control the right. place. Right. So there's a, I mean, perhaps because Green and certainly Washington, so many soldiers were state legislatures. They were politicians. They realized the political nature of mm-hmm. all warfare mm-hmm. and that they had to, and Pickens understands this too from his his zeal for order. Right. They have to support civil, what we call, what Tocqueville will call civil society. Right. They have exactly. to allow it to flourish. Exactly. They have to give it space. Mm-hmm. And the British kind of realize, I mean, Ferguson realizes it, but he's dead by this time. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, and that's, which is a bigger loss than they might have realized. Mm-hmm. Right. So Pickens, uh, they win at Cowpens. Uh, Pickens performs. Admirably, he's actually. You're right. He, you note that he's one of the few militia officers who's actually given an award by Congress, he's, which is uh, interesting. He's um, one of the few that is, does a really good job of working with the Continentals, working with regular. Why officers. do you think that is? Uh, I, I don't know whether it's just a lack of egotism or just pragmatism that this is you know. For us to win, the Continentals and the militia have to work together. Yeah, well, this uh, kind of brings us to a, a few yeah. minutes of, of, of Thomas Sumter hate. <laughs> uh, we are, I note that we are sitting in Clemson University, uh, just a few, uh, a, a few, a stone's throw from John Calhoun's house. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so we might be biased here against the University of South Carolina. Well, we're a few stone's throws from Andrew Pickens' house. We are. Is it, was he also right on this property right around here? Uh, just a, just a few miles from here, in Pendleton, Old Stone right. Church Road, yeah, the Hopewell Plantation. So he, um, <laughs> so the Gamecock is not maybe popular here, <laughs> but uh, he's and I was. You're, it's intriguing. You you made me go back and look. Pickens did not care for Sumter. It's not just Green and more, more, Green and Morgan are in some ways more restrained about mm-hmm. Sumter than Pickens is. Uh, well, he's simply you know. All we have to go on is that one statement he said to Lee that I, I found him vain and uncooperative and that's had little connection with him during the war. And that's that's all, pretty that's, strange. That's all he says. Of course, of course, like you say, you know, you, yeah. you can speak a thousand words in, in the space of ten. Yeah, um, vain and uncooperative kind of sums yeah. it up. You know? um, but, you know, in fairness to Sumter, we should there was that period in the middle of, of 1780 when he was the focus of resistance. In South well, Carolina. I mean, what any, was it. any was Sumter it. defender would say, and they're yeah. right, is that yeah. Pickens signed his parole and Sumter never did. Right. You know, Sumter was riding around trying to get, you know, he was defiant. Right. So he was a Gamecock. Uh, but um, the insurgency would not have sprung back to life without, without him. Without him, that's abs- yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. But damn, he was hard, obviously <laughs> impossible to work with. Right. Um, 
Yeah, he was uh, he was a Jeffersonian Jacksonian even before there were such things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he did not want to work with higher uh, the higher federal authority. He was he was against that. He was a nullifier. <laughs> but you know the interesting thing about that, and I think I, I point out later in the book is. Sumter and Pickens and Francis Marion, the three biggest heroes of South Carolina, um, all came from humble origins. Yes, they did. So by the end of the war, it's those three that are the uh, most important leaders of the revolution. Beginning of the war, that's not the case. It's, it's, It's the men with, you know, with lineage and and wealth. Do you think, that's interesting, do you think that... Well, I guess the Pickenses do do well in mm-hmm. the in the post-revolutionary order. Yeah, um, they do they do insert themselves up to the Pinckneys and the Rutledge level. Mm-hmm. How do they do that? I mean, like, like, Pickens has a <clears throat> um, one son who ends up being lieutenant governor, and another son who ends up being governor, as mm-hmm. well as a grandson who becomes governor. And there's a, and this one, is, one this becomes is from, governor of Alabama, doesn't they, or something like that, or is that a grandson? Or um, anyway, there's they become a prominent. there are some Pickenses that go to Alabama, but Francis Pickens, Pickens's grandson, mm-hmm. was the the governor of South Carolina on the eve of the, of the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, and um, <clears throat> it just shows this uh, how the war had a democratizing effect, um, even in uh, a, a colony like South Carolina, which was a rich very uh, plantation, extremely hierarchical, hierarchical colony, and a lot of difference between um, the Andrew Pickens who went to Long Canes and the Pinckneys who were becoming wealthy from Indigo at exactly the, the same time. And, right, and yet there's enough, ra- shall we say, enough radicalism in the American Revolution, or it shakes things up enough that people like Pickens and Morgan right. can uh, elevate themselves uh, because of the cha- through the chaos. Pickens is a, a good guy. If you're a low country uh, uh, nabob and, and you want to invest in lands out in the western part of the state, Pickens is a good guy to know after sure. the war. Uh, so that's part of it. But, but second, uh, when you're establishing a republic and you need a new basis for authority, mm-hmm. um, um, aristocrat- aristocratic lineage is no longer you know, the sole basis. Heredity is not the sole basis. For a public to work, they think there have to be men of virtue. There have to be men who are selfless enough not to uh, monopolize power for themselves. Well, what better than supposedly this uh, supposedly selfless military mm-hmm. hero um, who has demonstrated virtue, virtue and ability um, and has a lot of influence in the western part of the state? Mm-hmm. You know, so. And most of your book, in fact, is actually post-revolution, mm-hmm. I mean, right. at least half, right. which is great. <laughs> uh, because it no, it shows uh, it. it it's, it's not just focusing on the battles. I, I mm-hmm. love it. It's focusing on how he is basically indispensable to Washington for mm-hmm. Washington's dearest, one of his dearest aims, which is to uh, adjust and a, an Indian policy that's worthy of a, a virtuous republic. Right. Right. Uh, which will also assist in his, which will assist in Washington's dearest aim, which is westward expansion. Mm-hmm. So Washington wants to square that circle and put both of them together. In his mind, at least, it's possible. Right. And Pickens is one of the key tools with yeah. which to do that, right? Yeah, he. Do you need to? If this is a civilized republic, it should be a republic of laws. Yeah. Um, and you should draw up honorable treaties with the Indians and draw lines on maps and respect them. Um, and. Uh, that's that's Pickens' viewpoint as well. Um, 
Pickens, Washington, Henry Knox, uh, there are some some leaders in the early republic who who are searching for some kind of just and equitable deal with the Indians. Now they, they may be racist and they may be look, look, they're condescending towards the Indians. Yeah, but they but, still believe that. But they believe yeah. in law where uh, they right. believe that even the, that even the Indians uh, are worthy of law. Right. Right. It would be unworthy of them not to treat them also, with, with, with men with of humanity, honor. Men right? of honor, yeah, right, should right. treat treat others with humanity. Um, yeah, I don't know what Pickens obviously had a great deal of respect for the Cherokee uh, since they had come so close to killing him on several occasions. <laughs> um, but let's talk about before we stop. Let's talk about Presbyterianism. Um, you make a big emphasis on that in Pickens's life. It's obviously very important to him. Mm-hmm. Um, are there, you know, some British officers said that Presbyterianism was the, well, they're often quoted as saying that Presbyterianism was the, the, the soul of, of, of rebel mm-hmm. spirit. Um, that seems to me often exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, the Something like uh, 70 out of 80 Anglican pastors in Virginia took loyalty oaths to the rebel government. I mean, it's not as it... Certainly in, in, in Virginia, for example, Anglicanism was not a loyalist doctrine or a loyalist mm-hmm. religion. Different, it may be in Massachusetts, but that's a you know different church, right. almost. Um, how would you describe the role of Presbyterianism in the, the war in the backcountry of the Carolinas? Um, I forget who 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 was it that said that I but that I quoted that um, um, Calvinism or or, or evangelical religion mm-hmm. um, was so closely intertwined with republicanism by the revolutionary era, era that it was hard to tell where where one began and the other <laughs> left off. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's intertwined with family and clan. Uh, with family and clan, is, and and um, this you know, sense that comes from scripture and comes from Calvinist doctrine that uh, uh, man is man is inherently sinful, and this mm-hmm. this is a fallen world. Uh, it's a it's a world of sin and disorder. Um, it's not the world that God created, um, and that went hand in hand with not. Trusting to the uh, the honor and virtue of an of individual, yeah. an individual ruler. The uh, Anglican um, theologian Alistair McGrath has said that mm-hmm. Calvinism is, I think, by its nature, republican. Right. There's something to that. It, Calvin has n- nothing good to say of tyrants, and right. so long before Locke, he's identifying, you know, the natural inclination of all monarchs is to be a tyrant, and that's contrary to natural order. Well, the history of the relationship between Calvinism and monarchy is, is rocky. Is, is, is rocky, to say the least, yeah. from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and so, so that, there's a distrust of, of kings and bishops and hereditary authority. And this is where, um, certainly in the backcountry, is where you have this sort of clan-based... Well, I mean, mm-hmm. a church is going to be formed by the, the local people right. around here. Right. And most of them are related to each other. Right. So it's like, you know, this group of people who relate to it, they have a church. Right. You know, and so it's it combines family and republicanism and, and religion in a very powerful and strange and interesting way. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. In a way that you're not going to find in New England. Uh, it's a little, it's different. It's a little yeah. different. A little different. Yeah. By that time, I think it's By different. that time, it's a little yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, Puritanism, of course, is 
Calvinist roots just as much as Presbyterian. Theologically, so, yes, yeah, but yeah. sociologically, culturally, it, it plays it, out in different it ways. It does begin to, yeah. 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 So, um, what does he say about his Presbyterianism? Does he? He's what? What sources does he use? I know this is a big, this is a big problem for you. How did you it, write the book? A, how do you write about someone's internal religious convictions unless yeah. they really come out and? write some treatise on what they are, which, of course, Pickens or, didn't write treatises on he anything. He did not. But he'd write a letter about them? or uh, he, uh, what, what you have is this testimony that he holds family devotions every single day with his family yeah. and with, with, with Bible readings. Um, he is an elder and a church founder in every place he lives. He, yeah. he founds the Presbyterian Church and serves as, the, as one of the chief elders. Um, he sir, he uh, represents his congregation in the... Uh, in the presbytery at one point, mm-hmm. um, so I just I just had to extrapolate from that. This is a guy who takes his his religion very seriously, and so from there, okay, what do um, 18th century Presbyterians believe? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and so um, yeah. I I've, I felt like there was enough there just from his actions to justify that approach. Yeah, it's um, very much. I mean, I, I think Morgan is a little chattier, or at least his papers. Are a little, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if they're any bigger than Pickens's, but mm-hmm. you, in both cases we've got people who definitely believe things right. <laughs> and act on them Right. so that we have to look at their actions. They are men of action. They're men of action. And they have. so we have to figure out their actions in order to get back at their convictions. Right. We do have that, le- that one letter that he has... To his son, we've got a letter that survives that uh, um, gives God the credit for preserving him in a storm at sea. You know, mm-hmm. and and um, uh, it's, it's uh, clear he believes in a God, that Calvinist God who is absolutely um, omniscient mm-hmm. and uh, omnipotent, all powerful, all powerful. He uh, he directs all events to his to his ultimate ends, even even the even the the ones that you don't like, right, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there, I think there's, there's plenty there to, yeah. to go with that. And it, it explains his emphasis, his, his search for order and, and virtue. The sor- search for order and virtue is mm-hmm. just, that's just fascinating about him. Um, um, that's, I really love that. That focus on the book is, is, is fantastic. That's because I mean, you prove it, basically. Well, I'm glad you think so. I think, I think you do. <laughs> I mean, you do. It's uh-huh. just, it's. It, it, things click once you it's like when you find that interpretive key right you know things kind of start to click right. you know with Morgan right. I was oh wait he stays in Winchester there's something uh-huh. about the lower valley you know there's uh-huh. something about home you know he's homeless and now he is home that starts to something yeah. and he never talks about his parents or family ever 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 uh-huh. when you find that important thing about a person right all the tumblers start to, the combination to locks start to fall. You can start to hear it and click, click, click. You know, yeah. at least you've got an interpretive, uh, interpretive key that you can work with. Right. You know? right. Um, I was kind of shocked to realize that in 1809, Pickens considered in his will, he considered, did not, he did not manumit his slaves, but I was shocked to see that he even considered it. That's how low my, that's how, uh, I, I was even surprised to see that there was controversy in the 1790s yes. amongst Presbyterian ministers over slavery in yes. South Carolina. I had thought that even as early as the 1780s, um, I had not thought that was possible in South right. Carolina. I, were, were you surprised at that? A, a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, 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 had, I had thought that the, 
the debate in the Deep South over manumission had um, never really got off the ground. I thought it was completely an Upper South and, thing in the 1780s. And, and, and when you look at uh, um, what the uh, assemblies were doing, what politicians were sure. doing, you can understand that. Yeah. But the churches were still were seriously wrestling with it. And it, it wasn't yeah. just the Methodists or the Baptists who are we are known for being, you know, having that egalitarian, brief yeah. egalitarian, right. even abolitionist moment before conforming to the culture by 1810, I right. think is usually the date. Right. Um, even, the, even the Presbyterians. Well, the, and with the Presbyterians who are so focused on the word, what scripture says. Yeah. And, and the New Testament is kind of, ambi- well, the Old Testament too, yeah. is ambivalent. So yeah, I noticed in in the in, in his will, then he he says he he has a very Old Testament approach to slavery. Mm-hmm. So he says it's under the providence of God, mm-hmm. but he doesn't believe in uh, permanent servitude as a status for people. He believes that it should. So that's very much out of the Old Testament, uh, where no one can be a slave forever. Right. You know, there's not a it's not a, it's not a class of right. society, which right. of course. If you don't believe that by 1830, you don't believe in the South. Right. You, you, you believe something contrary to the order of, of things. Right. And it's, um, but he, he does, he, he gets this concern that, that other Southerners have, including Presbyterians, of if you do free the slaves, what then? What do you yeah. do with them, with yeah. these landless people who have, who have nothing? Uh, it, well, and and if, you, if you already have racist ideas about their ability to be, law-abiding and, yeah. and disciplined, then you've just turned loose a huge population. But he doesn't believe that. That He believes that uh, a natural, a person uh, who's free mm-hmm. should have land and dignity. Well, that's, what, that's why, well, that's why he wanted to provide for them. Yeah. Not just turn them loose, but he, right. he set off uh, how many acres? 100, about? 150 acres. 150 acres. For nine people. For nine people. Yeah. And, and, and work animals and tools and everything they needed to set themselves up. It's very much like Washington's will. And I was, one, mm-hmm. I've, I was wondering, looking at it, if, if he hadn't been in. Because it's, it's, I don't think anyone's found any necessary influence from Washington's will. Maybe we need to look mm-hmm. harder. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, did Pickens pick this up a little mm-hmm. bit from Washington's will? Yeah. Washington also uh, directs that they be taught a trade mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's obviously concerned that they have a, a dignified place in society, that right. they not just be laborers, that yeah. they be truly free people. Right. Um, and I was wondering, you know, what Pickens was thinking the same thing. But it did, I have to emphasize, it did not happen. It did not happen. Um, he, all his slaves uh, were inherited by his son or by some relative children of various kinds. You know, Pickens. Pickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, there's no evidence at all that would yeah. suggest that those, no. those people were, were ever free. So, um, just to, what do you think? What have you come away with after doing this project? What, you, what have you been? What's your? What's what's Pickens now in your head? <laughs> I mean, because I'm I'm still trying to figure out if I have ever figured out Daniel Morgan. I don't think I have, um, and uh, and there's there's a Pickens is a nicer story. I find Morgan's story actually the the after story very kind of sad. Uh-huh. Um, it things don't quite things don't kind of he, he I think he wanted to establish firmer foundations for his family than he did. Right. Uh, Pickens really built well for the future generations as witnessed their success. You know? Right, right. Well, 
you know, I wanted, as I said in the beginning, I wanted to get to know this guy. Yeah. How well does anybody really get to know Andrew Pickens? You know, um, and that's what I ask myself uh, uh, sometimes. We, uh, I, I, I'd love to sit down and have a beer with him sometime, <laughs> and ask what he really thought about about his um, brothers getting killed in the war, and yeah. and and, uh, and what he thought of, of, of Henry Lee and, yeah. and and Daniel Morgan. And, yeah, um, that's not going to happen. No, um, but he did leave this. I, I, I think there were many the generation that was young when Pickens died looked at men like Pickens and many others um, and saw them as setting an example of courage and virtue mm-hmm. that and and faith mm-hmm. that they felt their republic was based on or yeah. should be based on. Yeah. Now, of course, they were ignoring the fact that they were they had slavery. They were they you know they, they were, did lots of bad things. Else. We all do. Um, but in well, their I'll mind, be cavalier about it. But right. it's that we, we we yeah anyway. But in their mind, that was that was their legacy. Yeah. Um, and um, I think to a large extent, that that legacy um, is still felt by many Americans today. That yeah. in some way, this republic should be based on on virtue uh, and and faith. And th- there's something, of course. Um, what oftentimes people, Americans certainly are searching is people who, well, I mean, this is, goes all the way back to Plato, but mm-hmm. I think the man on the street, the woman mm-hmm. on the street would feel the same way. We want leaders who don't want to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the best kind of leader is the person that really doesn't want to be put into a position of, of power, right. maybe because they don't trust themselves, right. quite rightly. <laughs> uh, Andrew Pickens is exactly such a person. Exactly. I mean, he's yeah. like, it's like, you know, Socrates could have been talking about him right. on and one level. That's you know. what the revolutionary generation, the early republic generation wanted. Yeah. This is, this is class. He is like, he is an emblematic of classical republic, the classical republicanism. That right. so many revolutionaries adhered to. Right. You know. um, here's a weird question. I uh, <laughs> I got you set up with asking a weird question. Uh, Jay Tolson, who wrote a biography of Walker Percy, asked me, "Hey, have you had any dreams about Walker Percy?" <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, he asked me, "Have you had any dreams about Daniel Morgan?" I said, "What? What are you talking about?" And uh-huh. He said, "Oh, I dream." Walker Percy came to me in dreams and said, <laughs> "Boy, when are you going to finish that biography?" Did you ever have an Andrew? No, Pickens? no, I haven't had that. I felt experience. I didn't. I didn't have a Daniel Morgan dream either. I felt kind of. I felt kind of bad. You know? <laughs> well, uh, maybe I spent didn't spend enough time working on it. You well, or, you know, maybe you didn't spend too much. Too much time working <laughs> on it. Yeah. Do I be? Uh, but it is interesting how then when you spend time with, uh, I have felt a little sense of loss since I stopped writing the book. Mm, yeah. I mean, you spend a lot of time with someone in a way, and it's like you get. You don't get to know them. I know probably Morgan less about Morgan in some ways after having read all about him. Yeah. Uh, but it is kind of a weird sense of loss. Yeah. You know, like yeah. after when you read a good novel and the characters stay with you, but they're not present, you know? Yeah. Right. I don't know if you felt that or not, but yeah. I'm just being overly yeah, romantic yeah, yeah, I, I and writerly it, about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But he is, you know, he's somebody on my shelf. I do. I, I kind of feel like I know him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you're surrounded by him, yeah. as you say. I mean, right. you're around. This is his country. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of that's that's cool. Yeah. Um, all right. What are you working on now? Something completely different. Actually. <laughs> it's, it's once again just Rod Andrew uh, shooting himself in the foot by 
having to master a whole new body of literature. And, well, and, uh, I think you're going back to what you know. <laughs> you're going back to the core. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you were in the, there's a, there it is, you were in the United States Marine Corps History Division. Right. Which is, uh, that's like the first, the second, and then the history divisions. Is that? Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the fighting historians. The, the right. fighting historians, yeah. 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 Uh, what, uh, so you're writing, you're, you're kind of going back to that. Well, I'm really fascinated with the story about how the Marine Corps came very close to being abolished or absorbed into the Army right after World War II. Well, and the Army's uh, still, they're uh, still, you know, <laughs> still really upset about that. Yeah. Well, well, it's, the, the Marine Corps is the only branch in the military that's literally had to fight for its existence from the very beginning and, and uh, uh, to, to prove its utility. But on the other hand, the American public has has had a love affair with the Marine Corps ever since Bella Wood, at least. Yeah. Uh, um, but it was a it was a close run thing. There was a lot of shenanigans on Capitol Hill. There were uh, leaked classified documents. There was um, uh, a lot of cloak and dagger, by which the Marine Corps survived until North Korea's invasion of South Korea, and then when the Korean War came. That saved. That ultimately saved the Marine Corps, and so the Marine Corps emerges at, by the end of the Korean War not only as uh, with its with its role defined by law, mm -hmm. but as the only branch that has a minimal strength defined by law. Three ground divisions and three air wings. Um, um, so it's a real. It's a very interesting era in yeah, which the Marine Corps is is. is Defining it's defining to the public what its role is and what its utility is, and I think to some extent is still figuring it out for itself. Uh, so that's not military history; that's politics. Uh, it's politics, but it's plenty of chance to talk about um, the Inchon Landing and the Chosin yeah. Reservoir and the Pusan. But it is. I mean, that, that um, it's good history. What's the my favorite Edmund Morgan blurb or, or line uh -huh. review of Charles Royster's Revolutionary People of War? Yeah. This is intellectual history. It is social history. It is political history. It is military history. It is all of those things. That is to say, it is good history. <laughs> so you're trying to write good history. Well, that's my goal. We'll see. We'll see how I can see it, see if I can pull it off. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thanks for taking time on a very rainy day in upcountry South Carolina talk. All right. Thanks, Al. All right. All right. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.